This is Better Benefits, a podcast from the team at Brella Insurance. We're talking about how to use employee benefits to build a world where health hardships don't create financial burdens. If you're a broker or employer looking for fresh ideas and new products employees will actually use, this show's for you. I'm Laura Cave, Director of Marketing, and I'm here today with our Chief Revenue Officer, Mike Zarillo, for Better Benefits, episode number five. We're getting going here, five shows under our belt. Today, we're going to be talking to Dave Chase, the founder of Health Rosetta, about how he's helping employers everywhere save dramatically on their health benefits. Mike, how are you doing today? I am good. It's awesome to be back with you, Laura. I can't believe we're already on the show uh, number five, but really exciting stuff. Yeah. So Mike, for anyone who hasn't heard of Health Rosetta before, can you give us a little bit of background? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been aware of Health Rosetta now for three or four years when I came across Dave's book, The CEO's Guide to Restoring the American Dream. And, And I've been an avid follower since uh, we'll certainly hear more from Dave on this, but Health Rosetta is really a movement. It's a, it's a blueprint and an ecosystem of healthcare advisors, services, vendors, and strategies that are really all intensely focused on reducing an employer's total healthcare spend. And Health Rosetta has really blazed the trail in many ways when it comes to things like price transparency or direct medical contracting, cost containment. Again, we'll get into some of this, but it's a really impressive organization and, and certainly a really impressive mission. That's awesome. I am particularly excited about this conversation because Dave's mission at Health Rosetta is so aligned with our mission at Brella. You know, we're talking about this question of how do you keep health hardships from becoming financial hardships, from creating financial distress for consumers? And health benefits have been the major way that employers are helping accomplish that. But because of rising costs, that's driving up premiums, it's driving up deductibles, wages are not growing fast enough. So too many families are finding themselves in a situation where their responsibility for out-of-pocket costs related to their health plan is greater than their savings. And so any health issue creates a real financial problem. And Products like Brella are designed to address that, but somehow we have to let the air out of the balloon and get some relief on these costs. And that's exactly the work that Dave is doing. And they're having quite a bit of success at it. So I'm excited to hear more about how exactly they're doing that. Yeah. And and I stumbled across this statement in their website, which I just loved, right? And it says that health doesn't start in a pill or in a hospital. It starts at home with parents, with neighborhoods, with workplaces, with communities. And it just resonates to your point around why we started this podcast, what we're doing at Brella, and and really uh, just like like I said, a terrific mission. So that said, let's introduce Dave. And if you haven't met him before, he's the self-described Johnny Appleseed of what's working in healthcare. Dave, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to the chat. We are too. I suspect that our audience is going to find a lot of value in in today's discussion. So to get started, Dave, tell us a little bit about your journey and and how you got into this this crazy world of healthcare. Yeah. Professionally, 
I started my career in consulting with Accenture, putting in systems inside of hospitals. And then I founded Microsoft's healthcare partner business that, you know, many moons ago. Today, it's a $3 billion, 28,000 partner organization. And then when I met your, your founder, Veer, I had a startup called Avato that ultimately WebMD acquired. But it was during that journey at a personal level that really set me on this path. And that is, unfortunately, by the time I was 40, it had 10 friends my age or younger die. And obviously, those are all rough and our gut punches. But the last one was particularly brutal in that it was a friend who'd had a similar career trajectory, done the right things, done quite well. But ultimately, she got misdiagnosed. So of course, that cancer wrong treatment plan and ultimately ruined emotionally, financially, physically, ultimately leaving behind, you know, as a single mom, a 10-year-old daughter. And when I looked at that, it was a complete system failure all around from what it did to her financially, what it did to her medically. And I realized I'd been a part of that system, right? That not through malice or anything, but the way I was raised, if you see a wrong and you don't do something about it, you're complicit. And so I, had to, I needed to really get to the bottom of that. And so that was really a deep soul searching activity and asking why a lot, right? If you ask why five times, you usually get to the root cause. Yep. And that ultimately is what put me on this journey. Got it. As we sort of have these discussions with, with guests, I, I think one of the things that has really started there to resonate more, certainly chime in here, but it's the emotional connection to, to what we're doing. And I don't know, in the 20 or so years that I've been in this industry, I'm not sure the emotions have been so so high or so raw. And, and it's those emotions that I think are really beginning to drive change, which is a good thing, maybe long overdue, but still a good thing nonetheless. And, and I'm just curious if you, if you would agree with that statement. And if so, how do you sort of see that unfolding today in the work that you're doing with uh, Health Rosetta? Yeah, I mean, I would maybe go a little philosophical for a second. My own journey, I think a lot of people are going through this where, you know, to begin with, you just want a job, right? It's better to have a job than not have a job. And then what is better than that, though, is a career. And I had a career. That's definitely better than a job. But when you see the really the most human enterprise there is or industry there is, is healthcare, then you get to what's better than a career, which is a calling. And you know, that motivates you in a completely different way. And you are willing to go through hell to solve that issue and to address that calling. And I mean, I love what I'm doing. You know, the old cliche, you don't work a day in your life if you do what you love. And like, I'm there. And at one time, yeah, I mean, I knew healthcare is obviously a human enterprise, but it was, you know, maybe a bit of an ab abstraction where I wasn't personally impacted. And, you know, healthcare is not, this is really core to being a human. And, and we all, you know, need to really restore humanity to healthcare because in a lot of ways, it's just been turned into a transaction when it should be more relational. Yeah, I, you are preaching to the choir here. You've got, you know, a couple of people here who, who are right there with you in terms of passion for 
fixing this broken industry. I started at a health insurance startup uh, just after the Affordable Care Act has passed and was on the phone with people helping them choose their plan and understand how it worked. And I heard all their stories about the care that they needed that they couldn't get, their reaction to all the pricing and the deductibles. And I often had to, as a marketer, I had to write the the letters about your premium is going up next year. Sorry. And we were the good guys. Like we were the people who were really trying to fix it in really smart ways. And this is a really big challenge. And so that's why I'm really, really excited to hear about what you guys are up to with actually reversing the trend of increasing costs. Cause that is just the juggernaut that's killing all of us. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, it does require thinking about first principles and really getting to the core. And it's a system that doesn't need just a little tweak. And the reality is about every 50 to 70 years, medicine and healthcare go through a dramatic transformation. Probably talk about this a little bit more, but it's pretty obvious that we're on that in the midst of that. And it's going to look very different than it did five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, on, on that point, and if you think about the, the great work that you're doing at Health Rosetta and, and that the you know, advisors are, are doing, I mean, we continue to see stories of, of really some impressive outcomes on those efforts. How, would you mind sharing with our audience a bit as to sort of how you see the team being able to make those accomplishments and have those impacts? may seem kind of simple and maybe even a little bizarre, but it starts with healthcare is actually not expensive. What's expensive is profiteering and price gouging and administrative bloat and outright fraud mm. and inappropriate treatment in some cases, like the opioid crisis is sort of exhibit eight of that. And so, you know, the question like, how do you do it? Well, you just pay for good care. In fact, we would up the pay of a lot of the best high value, you know, healthcare delivery organizations and individual clinicians. So that's really it. And, it, you know, I sometimes will draw an analogy between what we're doing with something called LEAD, which is from the U.S. Green Building Council. So the built environment is a pretty good analogy with healthcare. It's very local, very entrenched. And if you look at over the last 20, 25 years, the built environment is very different. What LEAD did was came up with a blueprint for how to build and maintain buildings in a very energy efficient, environmentally friendly manner. And the thing was, it wasn't some magic day where all the old polluting buildings got raised and the next day they're all magically green built. The reality was this new blueprint was out there. It got adopted by professionals like architects and like architects, you know, we, we call the benefit advisors sort of the architects of health plans. They accredited architects and other professionals, we accredit benefits advisors. And what you see is a density of geographic activity. So with LEAD, there were locales like Portland and Seattle and Denver, Boulder, Austin, that were early adopters, really proved out the ROI, and then it rippled through the country. And that's kind of what, what we're seeing here is that type of dynamic. That's how it will be adopted. It won't be one sort of thin layer of peanut butter around the whole country. There's just particular locales where it's really getting reinvented. And, and sadly, you know, the I, I sometimes harshly use the analogy of Lee didn't say put recycle bins in, in coal-powered polluting buildings and call them green. 
a lot of what passes for innovation in healthcare is the equivalent of putting recycle bins and polluting buildings. And so you really have to do a rethink. Wow, that's so interesting. So can you say a little bit more about the blueprint itself that would sort of like lead had a certain formula for how to rethink yep. what a, how a building could be green? How are you guys rethinking how how healthcare can be more affordable? Yeah, I mean, it starts with like this really boring underpinning, right? The way you actually work with, you know, certainly organizations like yours, work with the benefit advisors in a transparent, high value way and how you manage risk. And there's a bit of savings there, don't get me wrong, but it's really that's the the key that unlocks other doors where the, you know, most of the spending is actually in the care. That's 85% of the spending is in the claims. And so we require all the benefit advisors in our program to basically honor this plan sponsor bill of rights, you know, whoever's sponsoring the plan, employer, union, whatever. There's an advisor code of conduct. There's an advisor compensation disclosure form. And if you're new to the arena, which even though I've been in healthcare, I hadn't been in health benefits, boy, these things look like sort of motherhood and apple pie. But the reality is, frankly, they're a polar opposite to the status quo in healthcare. And so once you have that in place, then you get into the care part. And one of the things that you recognize if you have your eyes open is there's not a well-functioning healthcare system in the world not built on proper primary care. So that becomes the foundation. And then what do you need after that? You know, it's straightforward, right? You need, there's some surgery or hospitalization. Of course, you need access to specialists and hospitals and people need medications. If they have, you know, real rare cancer, maybe they need to go to the Mayo Clinic or, you know, some true centers of excellence. And so much of what you see in healthcare, just take primary care. So we've destroyed primary care in this country over the last 20 to 30 years because of perverse incentives. It's not a snap of the fingers to rebuild it, but it also isn't rocket science. And you look at so much of what goes into health plans are just band-aids on broken primary care. So like, I'm just saying, how about we just fix primary care? Like, that's not that hard. You know, it's probably two parts Steve Jobs, one part Marcus Welby, if you're old enough to remember or hear about this old TV show, I think the first TV doctor, you know, that just kind of that classic family doc. And so that's the type of thing. You just kind of rebuild it brick by brick, just like Lee did, rather than just putting Band-Aids on, you know, what's frankly a gaping wound. Wow. And so what are, talk to us a little bit about the outcomes when companies are actually, it sounds like it's a bit of work to get it set up and make the leap. Yeah. Like certainly an old building burning coal and whatever with a recycle yeah. bin to become a lead certified building is like quite an undertaking, but then there's big wins, right? So talk to us about the outcomes. Definitely. You know, you look at most of lead, especially the first decade or two were new buildings, but then I think the empire state building, I think is the largest, you know, remodel, right. To lead standards. But where I go with this is say that here's the ultimate outcome. Actually, our reason for existing is something that we call the health Rosetta dividend because it's built on this premise that we're investing more than enough money to not only fund a world-class healthcare system, but also to provide what drives 80% of outcomes. Like you mentioned earlier, right? Health starts at home, right? What drives health outcomes are things like having a job that has good pay, 
safe neighborhoods, good food, clean air, social services, public health, these types of things. So the health Rosetta dividends, if you stop squandering money, which we know well-documented in this country, a trillion dollars, over a trillion is squandered in the US healthcare system. That would be the 15th largest economy in the world, just what we waste wow. in healthcare. So if we just get a bit of that, which is what our employers are doing. Here's the ultimate outcome that I like. I can talk about the specifics on what enabled this in terms of the health plan, but here's the outcome that I really love talking about is in Florida, a neighborhood in Orlando, a once crime-ridden neighborhood was adopted by an employer that basically took a fraction of what they saved cumulatively, and they've been doing this for almost three decades, they've cumulatively saved $425 million benchmarked against their competitors. And so they adopted this once crime-ridden neighborhood where there was unacceptable high school graduation rates. Since they adopted the neighborhood, they invested in kids and education in the form of daycare, preschool, pre-K, after-school programs, 450 college educations. Crime has gone down 78%. High school graduation rate is nearly 100%. About every year or two, it's actually 100% of the kids wow. in this program. And that total investment was less than 5% of the savings compared to benchmarking others. And that doesn't even speak to the, the fact that their employees have the best benefits package I've heard of any company in the country. And I was at Microsoft during their, their heyday. So that's one. I'll just give you one other one. Very That was a hotelier that the employer behind that in Orlando. Another example, more you know, working class uh, manufacturing. Oh, that's working class too, hotel. Pacific Steel in Montana. There are nine states, 44 locations, 750 employees, whereas Rosen Hotels, which is behind this Tangelo Park uh, neighborhood I was alluding to, they've grown during that time from 500 to about 5,000. Employees, Pacific Steel is about 750. Four years ago, they were spending over $8 million on health benefits. Last year, they closed out at under $3.5 million while benefits improved for the employees. So the outcome that I love there, though, the 30-year veteran forklift driver who was making $45,000 a year, he retired with a seven-figure nest egg because, and that wasn't entirely healthcare. Obviously, it was other things they did, but that was probably doubled because of what they did in their you know, healthcare or their health plan. How many working class forklift drivers are retiring with seven-figure nest eggs? That's actually what's possible if you don't squander money. Wow. Dave, I, if I have this right, wasn't the the healthcare spend decrease on Pacific Steel uh, Steel like in the neighborhood of four or five million dollars? Yep, from eight over eight million to under three and a half million. While benefits improved, so cost sharing cost sharing went away, and it, and it basically goes back to what we were, you know, what I was alluding to earlier. They contracted carefully for their care. 5,000 direct contracts in two years. These are really simple, fair contracts for care. And they got rid of profiteering in the drug procurement arena. Um, that was probably 20, 25% of it. The medical claims is probably the other 75, 80%. And so that allows them to fund a, basically a concierge service that helps them navigate the system. And like I said, if they, as long as people go to a high value care center, they're typically have no cost sharing at all. 
because the savings are so great for the company, they can easily do that. So it's 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 neat to see what's happened there. And you know, obviously they had to go through the change and it wasn't every step of the way wasn't unicorns and rainbows, but boy, people are really happy there. Yeah, really an incredible result. And and there's a number of those, I I think, as we sort of, you know, prepared for for our discussion with you today. So when you hear about this, and 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 I think you're effective in sort of illustrating that, you know, a lot of this isn't rocket science. It sort of begs the question though, why isn't every company doing it? And I'm just curious from your perspective as to what what are those barriers? The biggest one is is really a mindset shift. So most people have been, and I was there at one time, most people have been misled to believe that solving healthcare is like trying to solve Middle East peace. Like they like that solved too, right? But it seems kind of hopeless and out of their control to many people. So one of the things that's really important is to understand the difference between costs and price. I will often, you know, other than specialty drugs, by and large, costs have been essentially unchanged for at least 10 years in healthcare. If you talk to any doctor or nurse, this is the biggest cost component of care is, is labor. Their pay isn't fundamentally different than it was 10 years ago. Now, prices are very different. And hospitals have become very effective price gougers. And so you, and, and because of some perverse incentives and maybe unintended consequences of a rule in the ACA, you know, that we can, if you want to get into Wonkyville, we can go to, it really provided a driving incentive to jack up costs by the carriers in order to, to fulfill their fiduciary duty to their shareholders. And so, yeah, prices are are rising, but costs aren't. Uh, I have a little chapter in my book in the real market, and what we call the real market is actually a pretty pretty doggone large market, which is there's two facets to it. In the era of high deductible plans, there's a ton of cash pay, and there's a ton of direct contracts, and so that's not some little fringe thing. In that market, you know, we break down the data again. Costs haven't gone up. Price hasn't gone up. In fact, we high we highlighted a surgery center that's been very transparent about their prices and are dramatically less. And they're a absolutely a for-profit, you know, organization. And I asked the, the physician leader there, you know, have you changed prices in the 10 years you've been doing this? So, yep, four times prices went down because our inputs went down. Like that's not what most people are experiencing. Unfortunately, a lot of the reason people believe that is, is the way the industry has been set up. There's brokers who are representing themselves as essentially representing the buyer, but they're paid by the seller. And when you have that, even though they're good people, your toolkit's very limited and you have conflicts of interest. And in many cases, it's really off the rails. We find up to 17 undisclosed revenue streams the employer had no idea about. So, you know, and PBMs is sort of are the sort of poster child of this. PBMs have generated 32 different revenue streams. Most employers, if they've even heard of a PBM, which is pharmacy benefit manager, think they might get one or two revenue streams. So you just got to, it's, it's whack-a-mole, but it's really kind of a reset and say, the key thing that, you know, probably the chapter in that book, you know, CEO's Guide that resonated more than any other was the one that said, you're in the healthcare business, whether you like it or not, here's how to make it thrive. And 
the employers that are really thriving here, they just do what they do in every other area of their business where they're smart about procurement. They say, you know, Boeing doesn't say, hey, aviation industry, we're going to make a plane, bring us all your stuff and we'll put it together. No, they say, we're going to build a plane. It's got these engine specs, you know, GE, Rolls-Royce, if you want to provide that, great. Same way here. Every CEO says employees are our most valuable asset. So if that's true, uh, which I believe, then you need to steward that asset well. And the mindset is, hey, healthcare industry, it is a privilege for you to serve our most valuable asset. We need to buy these services. We are going to buy in this way. And if you want to participate, fantastic. And then you have a fair buyer and seller interaction. And there are many great providers who are willing to do that. It's not yet the norm. You know, it's sort of like, you know, we mentioned lead earlier. Maybe it's like organic food, right? You could get organic food 20, 30 years ago, but the supply chain was kind of immature. It was kind of hard. And it's kind of the same way here. We're not yet mainstream, but it's a straightforward thing. And once people pay attention, they realize, oh, yeah, I can I can do something about it. And when you look at a low margin organization, whether it's a hotelier, whether it's a manufacturer, really what in COVID we're calling the essential workforce, they can't just cost shift anymore. They try that. It doesn't work. And, you know, if you're some, you know, super rich tech company or hedge fund or whatever, and you want to squander money, you know, have at it, right? But we can't afford it with the work in the middle class. Right. Right. That was actually going to be my next question for you. Can you talk to us a little bit about the impact of, of COVID and, and has that made people more open to making these kinds of changes? How are you thinking about changing anything about your strategy going into 2021? Just curious how things look now. Yeah. I mean, it, it is really, I'd characterize it as a super spreader event for a set of pre-existing societal conditions that's been laid bare. They existed before, and essentially healthcare has destroyed individual and often government uh, financial well-being. Um, and so there is no resilience when you have half the workforce who their life savings are less than their deductible. They're functionally uninsured, and so you need to address that. And that's where we have a lot of duress. People are afraid to go to the hospital because they know that that's going to probably drive them into bankruptcy. You know, 70% of the, you know, we're the undisputed world leaders in medical bill driven bankruptcy. 70% of those people had so-called insurance, right? Right. That's not very useful. And so what it's doing is an acceleration, you know, so we have seen, you know, the Pacific Steel, you know, as an example where I talked to the CFO and, and, and he said, yeah, we would have had to increase top line sales revenue 25 to 30% to have the same profit impact as what we did with health benefits. That's tough for a mature, slow grow, growing organization. We see it a lot with municipalities where, and public entities, you know, we're just in the midst of a discussion with a, a city. We have proposed how they can address, you know, basically just doing what they should have done years ago. They have a $7 million but budget deficit because of tax receipts going down dramatically. Getting smart in health benefits actually almost exactly fills that budget gap. So we, what it's causing us to do is to really accelerate our outreach, let people know, like get that lifeline out there because it's rough. 
right? There's a lot yeah. of people really suffering and necessity being the mother of invention. A lot of organizations are taking a look where they didn't before. Dave, anything else on, uh, you know, sort of following up on that, on that comment, anything else on the shorter term roadmap? What, what's next for, for you and Health Rosetta? Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on. We're, we're doing a lot around the contracting infrastructure. You know, sometimes there's there's a term called regulatory capture that exists in a lot of industries. Healthcare is kind of an example of that where the industry being regulated pretty much captures the regulators through lobbying dollars and things like that. But there's something that's at least as big, which we call contractual capture. So a lot of the things we're talking about, the games that PBMs play, it's in this contracting infrastructure. Um, so there's some work, really interesting work there. But a lot of it's kind of doubling down on which communities are going to be the equivalent of the, you know, Seattle or Denver for lead mm. in healthcare. So a place like Tyler, Texas. Heck, I hadn't even heard of Tyler, Texas two years ago. And it's it's about, I don't know, hour and a half, two hours from Dallas. And what we see is this, when you have a density of activity, you have this kind of rule of threes where three employers do something in a given locale. Nobody notices, but you're kind of building muscles, you're building know-how in that locale. Then you get to nine, some people start noticing. Some of the providers are actually familiar with, oh, this isn't you know some blue cross card, but I actually understand this and we embrace it. We actually love those members. When you get to 27 or more, you know, three times, three times, three, game over, right? That's a tipping point where social movements, it's generally somewhere between five and 10%, 15% max tips of market. In that locale, the CEOs cannot keep their mouth shut. They're all thrilled they're spending 40% less or, or you know, even more of the savings. And so the word spreading, the advisor there, you know, for a time last year, she had to turn off the new clients spigot because the growth was so phenomenal for her. Wow. So we like those locales and it kind of correlates to where people are rebuilding primary care. Denver is is sort of in the earlier stages of that. Seattle is starting to make some headway on that. So it's kind of really doubling down and understanding more of the dynamics at that local level, building more relationships with the uh, clinicians and clinical leaders. It's interesting. You, you go to some of these events that we host and we'll have a doctor and employer next to each other and they're like, huh, wow, I've been working for 20 or 30 years. I've never been on a panel with, you know, a doctor, if it's an employer, vice versa, even though, you know, probably two thirds of the industry profits come from employers, about half of the revenues. It's kind of weird, right? Wow. So those are the types of things that we really want to dive deep into. That's awesome. So Dave, thank you. This has been really, this has been really great. Whenever we get a chance to speak to leaders like yourself, we always want to close by asking, you know, about a resource or a book that you recommend that really helped you change or grow as a leader that you'd recommend to our listeners? Yeah, definitely. There's, I'll give you two that are very different. One sort of healthcare specific. Marty McCary, physician, surgeon out of Johns Hopkins, very nationally prominent. He wrote a great book called Unaccountable, but his more recent book is called The Price We Pay. That would be the one that I would recommend. He really lays out what's going on and how, frankly, a lot of health systems have lost their way and paints some picture on how we get out of that. So he's he's very insightful. It's well 
researched and it's it's very informative. I think that was the most important book in like the last few years. And and then a completely different thing, given the challenges that we're in, there's a book that has really ancient wisdom. Um, it's written about the Stoics and it's called The Obstacle is the Way. And it's very good way of looking at things, I believe, and has certainly been something like with our kids, that's one of the resources we've given them. And they've really benefited, I and mean, we've all benefited from it. And you know, the the ancients had some wisdom, and a lot of that is timeless wisdom. And so Ryan Holiday is the the author there. He's he's provided the contemporary version of that, and he's got a daily stoic newsletter. So th- those would be tied to two, the obstacles away for this more philosophical way of addressing what we're in, and then the price we pay. Well, Dave, that is really great. And I know I speak for Laura. It's been a great discussion. And, you know, we applaud you for, you know, challenging the status quo, being different, being willing to, to push and, and take action. For our listeners who haven't had a chance yet to, to get to know you or Health Rosetta, I think this was a uh, a really good deep dive into the great work that you're doing. So thanks for being part of our, uh, of our podcast. Absolutely. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity. We're very accessible and, you know, I can give you some links offline and you can put those in show notes and you know, yeah, we're very accessible and, and uh, look forward to, you know, this is, everybody is welcome on this bus and it's going to be a great ride. You bet we're going to hit some potholes and I have a flat tire along the way, but everybody's welcome on the bus. I love that. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Links to the books that he mentioned and links to get in touch with Health Rosetta will be in the show notes for sure. So Mike, wow. We just covered a lot of ground. So super exciting stuff. I wonder what are one or two takeaways that are sticking with you? Yeah, two for sure. First, you know, I, I love Dave's thoughts on this idea of a job versus a career versus a calling and how that influences and motivates, you know, the 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 work that we all do. And it's just a good reminder in, in general. But again, from our perspective here at Brella, it's it's great to hear that, right? Because I think we're we're uh, very much on a mission, and and all of us here at Brella have a really strong calling to doing good work and and making a difference. You know, the other the other piece here that I, I love, and I haven't quite thought about it this way, but it's, you know, in, employers are running businesses today outside of their health and benefits. And, you know, just sort of, you know, simplifying it to smart procurement and, you know, looking at how they handle other aspects and facets of their business, you know, is an interesting lens that I hadn't quite thought through. So uh, that, that kind of resonated with me. How about how about for you? Yeah, just building on what you said, Dave mentioned this in the in the beginning as sort of a more passing comment, but it's really powerful. He said, "I'd pay more for value for really quality services," and I think that's that's right. You know, it's it's not about cheaping out on provide quality providers. We need healthcare, and we need great healthcare, and where there's value, there's money for that. But it's all that waste that we can get rid of with that smart procurement and partnerships directly with health systems that that share this philosophy. So I thought that was really great to hear and and really supportive of the healthcare workers and their jobs and those businesses. So the second thing what is maybe more philosophical but it struck me when he was talking about how when people think that 
healthcare is unsolvable, they don't try to solve it. And there's a philosopher that I appreciate a lot who says, if you think everything will stay the same, you will make it stay the same. But if you have an alternative future in mind, you will be prepared to see and grasp the chances to make it true. And that's sort of how hope operates. It gives you a vision and a confidence of a thing that you haven't seen in person yet, but you can imagine it. And I think that these stories and these testimonies and the work that Health Rosetta is doing is really giving a lot of people that hope that is the kickstart toward taking some action. And then once you get there, then it's then it's not so hard. So so that I thought was really powerful. Yeah, that's that's really well said. And you know, and I think again, sort of speaks to what uh, we're doing and and how we're focusing in on things like this podcast and bringing together good minds and good missions to sort of support you know the entire ecosystem of of this space that we find ourselves in. So I think that is a terrific way to wrap up, Laura. Another terrific episode. If any of our listeners. If any of this discussion has resonated with you and you, you want to learn more or get involved, please email me at sales at joinbrella.com. We're working with brokers and their Texas-based clients right now. And it's not too late, even if we've missed that fourth quarter open enrollment, certainly not too late to add a great benefit like Brella to the package. So get in touch with us. We look forward to uh, having a chance to, to catch up with you soon. Visit joinbrella.com slash podcast for notes from today's show. And if you liked the episode, share it with a colleague. This helps us spread the word. Be sure to subscribe or follow in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss our next episode. And that's a wrap. This is Laura Cave and Mike Zarillo from the Better Benefits Podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great week.